This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development, I'm Brian Thompson. And co-presenting this edition, I'm Michelle Tang. On the 15th of October, we celebrated the International Day of Rural Women. In episode 49, we're highlighting their work for a sustainable agricultural future. We'll be talking about the need to close the gap on gender inequality, especially in rural households in developing countries. This type of inequality is still getting in the way of worldwide attempts to stop hunger, enhance nutrition, and support sustainable farming and fair food systems. And we know that solutions come from more than just adding women to the mix. We'll be talking to Sharing Choden, IFAD's technical specialist for gender and social inclusion based in Delhi. And we'll also be looking closely at IFAD projects that have incorporated gender transformative approaches with IFAD's Philip Remy. Then we'll be taking you on a trip around Latin America to meet women who are leading their communities into a more equal and sustainable tomorrow. These women are incorporating the Closing the Gap methodology to promote the active participation of women in decision-making and strengthen their engagement in agricultural organizations. This methodology is part of the Joint Program on Gender Transformative Approaches for Food Security and Nutrition. Funded by the European Union and developed by EFAD, in collaboration with UN agencies, Food and Agriculture Organization, the FAO, and World Food Program, WFP. We'll be talking to Kimberly Noelia Uyaguari about the effect this program has had on her cooperative for nature conservation in El Salvador. And we'll also hear from a rural woman leader in Ecuador, Yudi Yoselin Guevara, on the importance of involving the whole community in these approaches. While on our visit to Latin America, we'll also stop off in Colombia to kickstart our new mini-series in collaboration with the Aqua program. In this episode, we'll be featuring our first guest, Ilsa Loango, and her women's entrepreneurship group, who specialize in cocoa production. In other news, platforms like the Africa Food Systems Summit that just took place in September are key in shaping Africa's agricultural future and building back better food systems. We'll be talking to one of this year's speakers, Hadija Jabouri, on empowering smallholder farmers in Tanzania, while at the same time addressing gender disparities. After that, we'll be talking environmental justice with Judy Ling Wong. As the founder and honorary president of the UK's Black Environment Network, she's committed to encouraging diversity and involving different ethnic groups in environmental projects. And finally, we hear from Claire Somerville, senior lecturer and executive director of the Gender Center at the Geneva Graduate Institute in Switzerland. She will give us an anthropological oversight into her research on gender and global health conducted both in Malawi and Mozambique. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcasts 
at efad.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform. And please don't forget to rate us. Coming up, we speak about IFAD's gender-transformative approaches with sharing. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang, and Brian Thompson. IFAD is championing gender-transformative approaches in collaboration with FAO and WFP with support from the European Union. This joint program addresses persistent gender inequalities in efforts to combat hunger and improve agriculture in developing countries. To break this down for us, we have Shering Choden. She's an IFAD technical specialist for gender and social inclusion based in Delhi. Our reporter, Rosa Gonzalez, asked Shering to spill the beans and tell us how IFAD puts it all into action. Hello, Sharing, and thank you for joining us today on Farms Food Future. So we know that IFAD is working with other organisations and championing gender-transformative approaches. But what does this entail and how are you incorporating gender-transformative practices into projects? Thanks, Rosa. So to answer your question, um, IFAD, in collaboration with other organisations, it's at the forefront of championing gender-transformative approaches. But what does this really mean? So in simple terms... It's about more than just including women in projects or ensuring they benefit from them. It's about fundamentally changing the way societies view and treat gender roles, ensuring that both women and men have equal opportunities and rights. Our collaboration with other organizations, it's pivotal in this regard, allowing us to pool resources, knowledge and expertise to maximize the impact of these approaches. I would also like to talk about a gender transformative tool that IFAD uses, which is the Gender Action Learning Systems. In short, we call it the GALS. So what is this GALS? It is a community-led approach that encourages family members to reflect on their aspirations, their thinking, behavior, and actions. So what is special about this approach? It ensures that the shared goals lead to positive behavior changes. For example, in regions like Nepal and Kyrgyzstan, GALS has been pivotal in promoting behavior change for gender justice, in improving planning of livelihood strategies, in ensuring equitable workload distribution within households, and also in enhancing women's entrepreneurship. And what are some of the results we've seen regarding rural women's empowerment? Over the years, our gender-focused interventions have yielded significant results in the empowerment of rural women. So many have been trained in skills that have enabled them to start their own businesses or secure employment, which has not only augmented their income, but also bolstered their decision-making power within their households. We've also witnessed a surge in the number of women taking on leadership roles in their communities, whether in local governance, community groups, or agricultural cooperatives. So to give you some specific examples, in Madagascar, those who attended the Gender Action Learning System, GALS training, they witnessed a remarkable increase in their revenue by more than 40%. And also a noteworthy outcome of this program is that 85% of the trained young individuals comprising of both women and men, they now have a clear vision of their life uh, project and also a well-defined action plan. An impressive 86% of these trained individuals, they were able to initiate or strengthen their primary activity. 
And furthermore, within households, there has been a shift towards more joint decision-making regarding agricultural land and also other farming assets, which in turn promotes a more inclusive and gender-balanced approach. Another example is in Pakistan, where IFAD is tapping into the power of digital tools to uplift uh, rural women. They're ensuring women not only have access to digital devices, but also receive training on how to use them effectively. So this includes um, teaching them about online safety, how to access educational resources, and even how to start and manage online businesses. So by the end of 2020, a surprising fact emerged that even though many women in countries similar to Pakistan had mobile phones, a staggering 374 million were still not connected to the internet. So Ifad's dedicated efforts are aiming to shrink this number, ensuring that more and more women can harness the benefits of the digital age. So with the 16 Days campaign coming up, I would also like to ask you about this year's main events. How do Ifad's efforts continue to address gender-based violence? Thank you. So the 16 Days campaign, which is officially known as the 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence, it's an international campaign that runs from November 25th, the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, to December 10th, which is Human Rights Day. So during these 16 days, activists, governments, and organizations unite in their efforts, hosting events and campaigns to spotlight the issue and advocate for change. When we talk about gender-based violence, we are not just discussing individual acts of violence, but a broader system that impacts our goals of alleviating poverty, ensuring food security, and helping communities adapt to climate change. So imagine a rural woman who faces regular threats or acts of violence. This not only affects her mental and physical well-being, but also her ability to contribute to her community. She might be hesitant to work on a farm, participate in local markets, or even engage in community discussions. So this directly hampers her potential to produce food, earn an income, and support a family. So now multiply this scenario, and you can see how entire communities can suffer, leading to increased poverty and food insecurity. Now add the challenges of climate change to the mix. As resources become scarcer and environmental stresses increase, tensions can rise potentially leading to more instances of gender-based violence. A study conducted in rural Ethiopia has um, identified various forms of violence experienced by women. These ranged from tensions and domestic violence arising from disagreements over the amount of water collected or the time spent collecting it to harassment, sexual harassment, and even rape during their journey to fetch water. So in response to these challenges, one of the notable endeavors include reducing women's workload by constructing water wells in the communities. So this initiative, it not only decreases the time women spend fetching water, but also mitigates potential risks that they might face during these long treks. Recognizing the intertwined nature of these challenges, we are in the process of drafting a how-to-do note. This guide will be a cornerstone for our projects, providing a clear roadmap on how to systematically prevent gender-based violence. And by doing so, we aim to amplify the effectiveness of our rural development initiatives. So in essence, for IFAD, tackling gender-based violence isn't a side task. It's central to our mission. By understanding and addressing the root causes and consequences of gender-based violence, We are taking a holistic approach to empower rural communities, ensuring everyone has the opportunity for a brighter, safer future. Thank you. 
thanks to sharing. Next up, Philippe Remy tells us how IFAD projects are integrating these approaches. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Michelle Tang, and I'm joined by Brian Thompson. As Charing Coden was telling us, the Gender Action Learning System is one of the gender transformative tools used by IFAD. It's proved successful in countries like Nepal, Kyogristan, or Malawi. The next step is to incorporate these approaches in Tunisia. Joining us now is IFAD's Philippe Remy. He recently visited the Programme for Rural Irrigation Development, also known as the PRIDE Project, in Malawi, to pick up some valuable lessons for new projects in Tunisia. He shared all the ins and outs with our reporter, Rosa Gonzalez. The success stories are often related to productive assets. So actually, they were able to better access to land, and particularly women, because it's always an issue. And then the other one, of course, was to develop and to have better livestock production. This was key. Another one was capacity to develop a small garden close to the house, but well organized. And then this has a good impact in terms of nutrition on the family. So this is also a good point. And then housing. I think this is something we have to, to look at. In IFAD, we have some projects, uh, I know, in Turkey supporting uh, housing. I think this is something we maybe we should do more because when people get a nice house, then they they get more confident, and then it's easier for them to you know to develop as a household. It's key for them, and it's something we have to consider more often in in our project to support those families to to improve their uh, their livelihood. So another point I like very much in Malawi were the champions. Because actually, you know, with the methodology, the GATH methodology, you can identify champions. And uh, then those people who have benefited from the methodology, then they can also upscale it and use it to support uh, other households. So the champion is a key part of the methodology. When it is done internally by somebody from the community, I think it gets more power to support others. Because, you know, they see that the champion has used the methodology in his household, and then they see the result of it, and then so they are interested in being supported at their time. So that was very, very interesting. What are some of the tools and techniques that projects use when incorporating this methodology? One of the main tools is uh, to develop a vision for the household on a few years, so actually they, they define what they have currently, then they define where they want to go, what they want to achieve, and then the different steps to go there. And the beauty of it is that actually they do it not separately, but as an household. And there is a sort of dialogue between the members of the household and particularly the men and the women. We saw the, the impact. We saw the results. We saw after a few years what they were able to achieve, particularly in terms of housing. Most of them, they were actually looking at improving their house. We could see the previous house sort of destroyed, and then the new one, they were very proud of it, of course, with their children in a house well-built and uh, and sane and so on. So I think this was very impressive, and it was also interesting in terms of animals. Often they, they were able to increase the flock number of uh, goats, particularly, and when they are able to, they buy uh, a cow. You know, so they sell some of the, some of the goats to, to be able to buy a cow, so they have to get milk. But there is also a, a good impact in terms of uh, nutrition. 
And now we have to see how to take advantage of this methodology and try to see how to adapt it in a, in a different context, like Tunisian context, which is, which is different, but the level of poverty actually is not exactly the same, but we find pockets of poverty in Tunisia where people are very, very vulnerable, very needy families. This type of methodology is surely a good way of improving the livelihood of those people and also to start changing the social norms in Tunisia, which of course take time, but it's a good way of starting doing it slowly and uh, with a good appropriation of the households themselves. What would you say is key when implementing this approach? If you have some uh, senior management or in the Ministry of Agriculture, for example, who are convinced by the methodology and who are able to implement it for a long period, this is very key. And this is the case in Malawi because actually they started in, uh, I think, in 2006 to develop this GWE approach and so on. And there were two ladies at the top of the service in charge of extension services. And they were completely convinced that to be effective in terms of extension, you have to involve the women. And so they were very interested in developing new approaches. But, you know, the fact is they they started to do it, but they remained in this position for more than 10 years. Even now, you know, now they are still there. I mean, because we could meet one of them during the meeting and she's quite old, but she's still there. She's still uh, giving advice, even if she's not in charge anymore. But So I think this is very important, yes, the governance and the fact that there is an appropriation. Often we have the difficulty to have a big turnover in terms of responsible people for that. So actually you can start something good and then after a few years, I mean, there is a change of director and there is a risk of, uh, you know, changing methodology or changing approaches and so on. So, and then the risk that everything failed. So with uh, in Malawi, I think one of the key success factors was that the continuity in terms of support and in terms of implementing a strategy towards uh, women uh, empowerment and uh, using this uh, girls' approach. That was Ifaz Philippe Remy talking to our reporter, Rosa. You can find out more about this project by going to www.ifad.org. There, you can also learn more about the joint programme on gender-transformative approaches for food security and nutrition. Just add forward slash gender. Up next, we travel to Latin America to hear all about how rural women leaders are closing the gap. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang, and Brian Thompson. In Latin America, rural organizations have traditionally been led by men. EFAD has been actively working together with rural community members to combat this and promote the full and equal participation of women. How do we do this? EFAD created an integral methodology called Cerrando Brecha. In English, Closing the gap. Surveys are used to identify gender gaps in areas such as production, control of resources, and leadership. Then an action plan is agreed among members of the organization and implemented with the support of trained facilitators. In 2021, the methodology was updated in Rural Adelante, an EFRAD project in El Salvador, and since then, this has been applied in more than 50 organizations. 
Let's learn more about closing the gap by listening to some of its key participants. Kimberly Noelia Uyaguari is a young leader involved in the implementation of the Rural Adelante methodology in Ecuador, in a cooperative that works to conserve nature and at the same time runs an ecotourism project. Our reporter Roberto Gonzalez spoke to Noelia about the fact that despite the challenges they face in terms of generational and gender gaps, the cooperatives managed already to produce numerous results. The Cooperativa de Desarrollo Jima Limitada is located in the Jima Parish of the Sixa Canton in the province of Azue, Ecuador. It is a development cooperative focused on the growth of nature and agricultural development. In this case, there is an ecotourism project, and the Cooperativa de Desarrollo is responsible for preserving and protecting the forest. My connection to the cooperative is primarily as a trainer for projects aimed at closing gaps, and I lead courses there. Additionally, I am the one who conducts workshops at the cooperative, and I am also the granddaughter of one of the members of Cooperativa de Desarrollo Jima Limitada. The challenge they face there is that most of the people in the cooperative are elderly and they hold on to long-held ideas. So they have the challenge of including more young people, their children, families, and grandchildren. At the same time, gender gaps are quite pronounced with women mainly in the kitchen and men working in the fields. However, once we implemented the Cerrando Bre, methodology, they truly gain new perspectives to make a difference. Thank you, Noelia. Tell us about closing the gap methodology and how you apply it in the community. The Cerrando Brechas methodology involves identifying and differentiating the small differences that may exist in the roles between women and men. Sometimes these differences may seem small, but they can have significant consequences. For example, the decision-making process is one of the aspects we analyzed in the cooperative during our workshop. Sometimes people say that both women and men make decisions equally but upon closer examination, we realize that women are often more influenced by men. That is mainly what Cerrando Brecha's methodology consists of. What changes have you noticed in the community? Once we applied the methodology and took affirmative actions together, we realized that, for example, social events were never organized for both women and men in the same way, despite having been together for so long. There was also little concern for the health of men, let alone women. From that point forward, the changes we observed were that, after gaining this new perspective, we realized that we need to consider the health of all of us, both mental and physical health. We need to collaborate with the local authorities to work together, not only within the cooperative, but also to extend it to the rural community we are a part of. That's the most significant change we witnessed. There is a before and after when analyzing gender role perspectives in the community, especially in Cooperativa de Desarrollo Jima Limitada. What message would you send to men and women in rural communities to continue working on reducing gender gaps? Why is it important? 
The message I send to both men and women is to continue working together, to embrace new perspectives and to promote education, knowledge, and information for everyone, regardless of gender. We should stop categorizing men and women based on traditional roles and allow women to occupy more spaces while also enabling men to make decisions that do not adversely affect women. When we can be a part of different perspectives, we become aware of our reality and the reality of others. So the key is to keep the community united while simultaneously encouraging multiple perspectives. Thanks to Noelia. Moving now to El Salvador, we'll be introduced to Yudi Yoselin Guevara. Stay tuned to learn more about her inspiring story on social work and her commitment to fighting injustice. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson and Michelle Tang. IFAD's Rural Adelante project in El Salvador strives for sustainable market access for small-scale producers with a focus on the needs of women, young people and indigenous communities. Our reporter Roberto Gonzalez spoke to rural woman leader Yoslin about her cooperative and the importance of involving the community to effectively close the gap. Hi, Jocelyn. Could you please tell us about the cooperative and your role within it? The cooperative I represent is called the Cooperative Association of Agricultural Production, November 30th, 1992, RL. Currently, I serve as the chairwoman of the supervisory board. You are a young woman, but you already have a long history of social and community work. What moved you to do this? Since I was young, around seven or eight years old, I remember my dad always worked in social organizations. I used to tell him, Dad, I want to go with you. So he always involved me in all the organizational processes he was a part of. That's where my enthusiasm to participate and work towards the betterment of young people and a transformation in my community comes from. Closing the gap methodology is applied with the participation of the community. Can you share some achievements of the community in the context of IFAS project Rural Adelante and Closing the Gap methodology? Certainly, the methodology starts with Rural Adelante's initial approach to selecting my cooperative. The participation of my community begins from there, specifically with the board of directors, where the first contact is made, agreements are reached, and then, following the methodology's guidelines, the tool is applied with women, members, and also the board of directors. Later, the results that have been achieved are shared, and this is where the community's involvement becomes more direct, because it becomes our responsibility to execute it. Rural Adelante has also provided us with various participation opportunities, one of which was a diploma program called ABC of Substantive Equality. It covered different topics, such as types of gender-based violence, the evolution of feminist movement struggles, 
Understanding the comprehensive law for a life free from violence against women, which is a public policy in our country, and also the topic of decision making. With this diploma program, we are able to educate female members, and the results are quite eye-opening. Many of them were unaware of the different types of violence, and during our training, they would say, Yoselin, is this considered violence? Yes, it is. I didn't know, and my husband does this often. So we, as facilitators, explained everything to them and showed them how they could start making changes in their homes. It was very satisfying when they would tell us, Yoselin, I already talked to my husband, and I told him that this is violence, and he is changing, or I'm asserting my rights. Another result related to the methodology was around masculinity, where Rural Adelante also conducted a workshop for male members who would then replicate it for other members of the cooperative. Some of these men were accustomed to a more patriarchal upbringing, but through these workshops they reflected and even changed the way they expressed themselves. So, I believe these are significant results of the methodology, complemented by these other learning opportunities. All of this will will be applied to our cooperative, helping us close the existing gender gaps and work together in a more harmonious way in other processes supported by Rural Adelante and those we initiate ourselves. On your WhatsApp profile, you have a fragment of a very popular song by Mercedes Sosa, who was known as the voice of Latin America, made and just not being different to me. What inspires you about this message? Being involved in various processes since I was seven or eight years old, I have witnessed different injustices in our society that have remained unchanged due to various factors. So, I've always taken this motto from the greatest Mercedes Sosa as a life philosophy. If I'm in this world, it's to contribute something to those around me, to what I am and what I want to achieve. I always keep in mind that I should not be indifferent to injustice and that when I see an unjust situation, I must take action to change it. And the song also ends with, so that dry death doesn't find me empty and alone without having done enough. But I don't want this to be understood as romanticism, but rather that the people who have been alongside me can feel good about my company. And when eventually I pass away, I can do so happily, having achieved at least something good in my life. Thanks to the Yoselin, and thank you to our reporter, Roberto. Next up, to kickstart our new mini-series featuring the ACUA program, we'll be joined by Ilze Luango from Guapi in Colombia. This is Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson, and Michelle Tang. We're kicking off a new mini-series in collaboration with the Aqua program, an organization supporting Afro-descendant communities throughout Latin America. Our first guest is Ilsa Loanga, joining us from Guapi in Colombia. Her women's entrepreneurship group has created itself a cultural identity by cultivating the traditional cocoa crops. 
Their goal is to strengthen a value chain between producers and those who process the product. The traditional knowledge of cocoa processing is an added value that her company, Chokomwek, has inherited from generation to generation. Our reporter, Rosa Gonzalez, asked Ilsa about how the idea of setting up Chokomwek came about. The idea of creating Chokomwek emerged as a commitment to ensure and promote opportunities from the local perspective, from rural areas. Our main goal is to enhance the quality of life through the transformation of cocoa into chocolate and other regional products in confectionery and artisan sweets. In addition to improving the quality of life for those working in the cocoa transformation chain, it's also about contributing to the income generation of the cocoa producers who supply Chokumwik, enabling them to enhance their quality of life as well. It's about empowering black women, indigenous women, single heads of households, and the youth in our community. As a member of the network of Afro-Latin American and Afro-Caribbean women and the diaspora, can you tell us about the specific challenges that Afro-descendant rural women face in terms of economic empowerment? Well, before we delve into the challenges regarding economic empowerment, we need to address the inequality in access to education, employment opportunities and connectivity in our areas. Given that we live in regions affected by armed conflict, additionally, the lack of support networks for product marketing in rural areas is one of the biggest challenges we face as black women, indigenous women, and young people when it comes to entrepreneurship, as geographical dispersion is a limiting factor for us to achieve economic growth. We need training and education in rural areas, both for children and adults. It's complex. Another challenge we face is the insistent flow of production, which guarantees for product marketing at fair prices. Achieving this could lead to discussions about global tourism, helping us address economic challenges and bridge the gaps. What do you believe are the keys to promoting sustainable development in rural communities like yours? Ensuring safety guarantees so we can work the land without fear of having to leave our territory at any moment. And securing production, transformation and marketing. From Chocomuic, which stands for Chocolate Made by Enterprising Women with Cultural Identity, one of the current challenges is marketing. I think it's crucial to call on governmental and non-governmental organizations to support local initiatives emerging from the territory and rural areas. People believe it's possible, and through Chocomuic, we've realized that. We need to keep hope alive, and sometimes it's not just about money. It's about having the will. The Aqua Foundation, for example, with its Kume initiative has been fundamental for Chokumwik because they help us showcase our work and market our products, allowing us to sustain our activities. We have a fundamental strategic ally in the Aqua Foundation and its Kume initiative. 
What is your vision for the municipality of Guapi in terms of sustainable development and opportunities for indigenous women? Guapi is a territory where the majority of the population is of African descent, rich in fauna, flora, and where people make their livelihoods through agriculture, fishing, and mining. We also have Gorgona Island, which attracts a lot of tourism. Still, there are potentials within the urban and rural areas of the territory. Today, our people are becoming aware of the wealth we possess, which we often take for granted. We have great potential to increase and stimulate our income levels. From Chocomuik's perspective, Guapi smells like cocoa, and with hope and through cocoa, we can improve the quality of life for those in the Chocomuik production chain and our producers. Chocumwink continues to be a bridge for other organizations to strengthen themselves as we believe sustainable development from rural areas is indeed possible. What advice or words of inspiration do you have for other Afro-descendant women who wish to undertake similar initiatives in their communities? Work hard and smart to achieve your goals and never forget to rest and take time for yourselves. Embark on endeavors that ignite your inner passion and joy because that also helps inspire us every day, making us feel satisfaction rather than fatigue in what we do. Another piece of advice I'd like to offer is to start where you are. Often we wait for funding, but funding isn't the most crucial aspect when it comes to entrepreneurship. Instead, consider what problem you want to solve and how useful your efforts can be for society. I always keep in mind a quote from Martin Luther King, which says, if I can help somebody as I pass along, then my living will not be in vain. I believe that if, as Ilse Luango, I can help someone find and maintain hope, I will have lived a meaningful life. Thanks to Ilse Luango and the ACUA program. You can find out more about their work at www dot programmaacua.org and make sure you also check out our other podcasts in podcast 46 we heard all about the power of sending money home to help development then in podcast 47 we explored ways to get young people engaged in agriculture and in podcast 48 we talked about all forms of malnutrition and brought to you a fascinating report on obesity in developing countries. Coming up, we're very excited to have reached 50 Farms Food Future episodes. Truly fabulous at 50. Tune in next month to see what we've in store. Now we continue celebrating women leaders in agriculture with Hadija Jabira, founder and managing director of Tanzanian agribusiness company Jibri. You're listening to Podcast 49 of Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang, and Brian Thompson. Next up, we speak with Hadija Jabouri about the Africa Food Systems Forum, also known as AGRF, and about empowering smallholder farmers in Africa. 
Hadija as the founder and managing director of Tanzania agribusiness company GBRI is dedicated to promoting sustainable and profitable agriculture by empowering smallholder farmers. Her company focuses on training, production, value addition, cold storage, and marketing of horticultural produce. It was recognized as Tanzania's best agribusiness company in 2020. Hadija has received several awards, including the Women's Award of Excellence in the Agribusiness Sector 2018, Invest to Impact Award 2019, Feed the Future Grow We Award 2021, and Top 50 Woman in Management Africa 2021. Wow, she got a lot of awards. Hadija, well done. She spoke to us between award ceremonies, I presume, to our reporter, Rosa Gonzalez. Hello, Hadija, and welcome to Farms Food Future. First of all, could you tell us about your journey and what inspired you to establish Jibri Business Solutions? How did your experiences shape your commitment to empowering smallholder farmers? Thank you so much for inviting me to your podcast first. I personally never thought a day will come and I will go into agriculture sector anyhow. And that is because I am coming from rural Tanzania. And I remember growing up, I used to see smallholder farmers. And when I am attending conferences, I always tell people, can you close your eyes and picture a smallholder farmer in Africa, in Tanzania, particularly. And I remember it was seeing people using hand holes, walking without wearing shoes, living in extreme poverty. So as a young person back then, I never wanted to have the same lifestyle. I wanted something better than that. But later on, after university, I came across an opportunity in horticulture value chain. I decided to go into the sector. And after two years growing vegetables and marketing locally, we decided to expand international markets. So that is how we started working with the smallholder farmers. And currently with what we are doing, I am personally trying to change the picture, the one I used to see growing up. And now I believe with our intervention and lots of support we are giving to smallholder farmers, people will be inspired more to look at agriculture differently and go into the sector. So we know that smallholder farmers play a vital role in Tanzania's agricultural landscape. Could you elaborate on how Jabri Business Solutions contributes to empowering these farmers and making agricultural production more sustainable and profitable? Yeah, so agriculture sector in Tanzania contribute 26.1% to the GDP, but also the sector which employs over 65% of the population. And you will see in the sector, 90% of the total production of food in the country comes from smallholder farmers and majority of them actually being women smallholder farmers. So what does Jibri do? As I mentioned earlier, we are into hot Currently, we have over 5,000 smallholder farmers in five different regions in Southern Highlands, but also in the northern part of the country. And because of the nature of the market we are supplying to, we are pushed to comply with food safety standards. So the company, among the support we are giving to smallholder farmers includes training them on good agronomic practices, 
we have been facilitating strategic linkages between the farmers we are working with, with different partners just to make sure they are able to access financing, which in return makes them capable of buying inputs and producing to the standards which market we are supplying to uh, require. And how do you address gender disparities within the context of empowering smallholder farmers? Could you share an example of how your efforts have contributed to promoting gender equality in Tanzania's agricultural sector? A majority of smallholder farmers in Tanzania are women. You realise these are the people who have always been facing numerous challenges in their activities, starting from access to land, access to technology, access to finance, uh, market and market information. And majority of our employees, direct and indirect employees, are women. But you will find out over 65% of the smallholder farmers we are working with in different regions are also women. And and we have been partnering with different other organizations to make sure we are supporting them to unlock their most depressing challenges. Among those challenges is access to finance and maybe because of the environment where we are and our culture norms, uh, women don't own land. When you go to financial institutions and you want a loan, you'll find out among of the things they want you to have is collateral and majority of smallholder farmers we're working with do not have collaterals. So that has been pushing our company because we want them to participate fully. We want them to grow this produce and sell to our company. Are there any specific success stories that you would like to share with us? Yeah, there are so many success stories, but the one which is always close to my heart is about this women group. So I was told there is a village called Wangama and the government with support from UNEP, they did put irrigation infrastructures which were solar powered in a 20 acres piece of land. But unfortunately, there was nothing which was being done at that particular land. So I was approached, I was told if I can visit it, go and see if there is any opportunity Jibri can offer. So I went there and I remember I remember I met this woman called Mama Lusungu. She was a member of a saving group. It's very common in Tanzania. In villages, you'll find there are groups called Vikoba, where people put their savings, and then they divide what has been accumulated over time. So so, uh, they had a group. It had over 50 women. I approached them. I told them we have uh, opportunities as a company. We do have market for horticultural produce, and we encouraged them if it was okay for them to use their savings to grow French beans at that time, which they accepted. A few months later, that group was producing more than what we were producing in our own farms. The average production of French beans in one acre is 3.5 metric tons, but they were reaching up to 4 metric tons to 4.5 metric tons. And later on, after harvesting, which they did in different seasons, some of those women were fattening their savings on their kids. But at the same time, some of them managed to take their children to school. They were building houses for themselves. And that is just one story. But we have our presence in five different regions. And you will go, you will see some of the people mentioning because of existence of our company, they are sure they will always get a sustainable market and profitable market because we do contract farming. 
Thank you. And finally, I would like to ask you, from your perspective, what role do platforms like the Africa Food Systems Forum, also known as the ADIF, in which you recently took part, play in shaping the future of agriculture in Africa? Yeah, so I think it is showing hope for African food system. And I see it is coming with different opportunities for agripreneurs in Africa. Some of those opportunities include investment opportunities. We have seen market opportunities. There will be exhibitions at AGRF, but also it's a place where agriculture stakeholders get to network, to share experience, to share the knowledge they have in the sector. Africa is the net importer of food, despite of the fact that our continent has more than 65% of arable land, which is still fit for production. We have good weather, we have land, we have market opportunity. Just look at Tanzania, it's a population of 61 million people. If you look at EAC market, it's a population of over 350 million people. SADC market, now Africa free trade area, it has eased some restrictions, which were making people not being able to trade among ourselves. So with our population, with the land that we have, with the, the demand for food, I think these platforms will bring out solutions to what needs to be done to reshape African food system. Thank you to Hadija and to our reporter, Rosa. You can find out more about her work at www.eatfreshoneword.co.tz and about the Africa Food Systems Forum at www.agrf.org. Coming up next, we speak to Judy Ling Wong from the Black Environment Network. This is Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang, and Brian Thompson. Judy Ling Wong is a pioneer in the field of environmental justice, a tireless advocate for social inclusion. She's been working for decades to encourage different ethnic communities to get involved with environmental causes. She's also the founder and honorary president of the UK's Black Environment Network, which was set up over 30 years ago. I spoke with her back in episode 17 about the intersection of race and climate justice. Now we catch up with her to see what progress has been made since then and to assess the role of nature-based activities in addressing eco-anxiety. Our reporter, Rosa Gonzalez, spoke to Judy. Hello, Judy, and thank you for joining us on episode 49 of Farms Food Future. First, I would like to ask you if you could tell us a bit about your role as a woman leader and pioneer in the field of ethnic participation and how the Black Environment Network came about. Well, the Black Environment Network was formed because in 1987, there was no ethnic minorities visible at all in the environmental sector. So a group of people got together and said, let's do something about it. And of course, you have to pioneer the methodology, because in those days, if you're going to do something like this, nobody exactly know what needs to be done. So we really started off very courageously saying, we just go out and do this, find out what the situation is. And by working with each other in the environment, environmental sector among the ethnic minorities just make it work. So you may recall in episode 17 of this podcast, we talked to you about the intersection of climate change and race, focusing on the Black Environment Network's efforts to raise awareness and engage with ethnic minority communities. How has this role evolved and what progress has been made? 
Well, it's a long time ago, isn't it? 1987. Since then, we've been so successful at integrating minorities into the environmental sector that not only do they participate and contribute across sustainability, they have ideas of their own. So we're very, very happy to report there's now a database called Climate Reframe, where there's over 150 listed multicultural environmental experts and activists. So it means that we're going into the sector. It's still early days. These things take time, but we're certainly growing in influence and in presence. But one thing we must realize is that ethnic minorities in the UK are in continuity with the ethnic majorities across the world. So when you talk about race, it's not as simple as where they are in the West and the minorities in the West. We have to take into account that we are people who are like the living world news. We know exactly what's going on in our countries of heritage with our colleagues and friends and so on. So we bring with us this passion for climate change because People across the world and in the deprived areas of the West as ethnic minorities are so much more heavily affected because we live in poor environments, especially in urban environments. It's all concreted. It's very hot when it heats up. So the transformation of areas where people live and how they work and so on is critical. And of course, across the world, it's also about growing crops, which is fundamental with land and forests and so on being so affected. There's changing the possibility of whether you're going to be able to grow anything at all as time goes on if we don't do something about climate change. So we know that the Black Environment Network has played a significant role in providing access to nature for urban ethnic minorities. Could you describe some of the initiatives or projects that have been successful in introducing these communities to the countryside? Well, as you know, minorities, especially in the past decades, came into urban environments taking up the poorest jobs. They really had no choice. And taking up the poorest jobs meant that they didn't have money to go anywhere. Not only that, people didn't take any interest in them, so they didn't even know where to go. It's difficult, you know, to find places to go or to hear about them. So our first projects were very much about taking people into nature reserves, countrysides, urban parks and so on, so that they can have a sense of the nature that is now in their new home country. And as this grew, they identify with the areas and begin to want to volunteer and also to change the very deprived environments in which they live. So planting trees and so on. But many areas actually don't have places to plant trees except street trees. And so for many people, even little balcony gardens make a big difference to their lives as connection to nature. And do you believe that these practices could be adapted and applied to support small-scale farmers in developing countries? Even in this country, in the countryside, you know, there are now black farmers and they had to be very courageous to go into very predominantly white areas to begin farming. Farmers over here as a whole, not just ethnic minorities, have begun to take notice that there are opportunities for diversification on their farms. People would like to spend time in the countryside. So some farmers have started providing accommodations for weekends and so on and earn extra money. And also, if you are near to an urban area but have a farm in the countryside, it's also good to do things like farm box schemes, which is very popular here, where people cut out the middle person and buy directly from a farm, especially if you're on the urban fringe. And that is a stable income, often organic growing and so on, which is good for people's health as well. 
Finally, I would like to ask you about the role of nature-based activities in addressing eco-anxiety. How do you see nature-based activities as a therapeutic resource? So what happens is that one of the things about environmental activities is that it's intrinsically positive because everything you do with nature is not just about survival, but about being in a beautiful environment, a very life-enhancing environment that actually has an impact on mental health and physical health as well. So as far as eco-anxiety is concerned, one of the things they've found in research is that if you're actually doing something about climate change and sustainability, you do not feel as powerless. You're part of the picture of making things better. So working in nature-based initiatives, which benefits you in general in physical and mental health is one thing, but also has that extra dimension of making you feel more powerful and therefore less anxious. That was Judy Ling Wong from the Black Environment Network. You can find out more about them at ben-network.org.uk. And don't forget to check out episode 17 or her previous interview. You're listening to Farms Food Future with Michelle Tang and Brian Thompson. Our final guest, Claire Somerville, is a medical anthropologist specializing in gender and health issues. She's currently executive director of the Gender Center at the Geneva Graduate Institute based in Switzerland. Our reporter, Kira Rainsby, was able to gain an insight into her research and what this entails the gender and global health issues in rural communities. Good afternoon, Claire. Thank you for joining us on episode 49 of Farms Food Future. We know that your research spans a wide range of topics from gender, health, to digitalization and sustainability. Could you perhaps share a particularly impactful finding or project that has made a significant difference in policy in the food security or rural space? I think I'm going to dive back a little bit on that question and begin with my discipline, which is anthropology. So the topics that you just listed, they seem quite varied, but actually they all come from an anthropological perspective. And they're all, one way or another, connected with global health. And in particular, I wanted to always take a gendered perspective and looking at food and food security as a nutrition issue. So all of my work in some way or other has been tracking food consumption patterns. And that might also be sort of availability of food, access to food. And these really vary between rural, peri-urban, urban contexts. And then we can see those mapped in patterns of diseases. So I think the ways in which some of my work has been particularly impactful is work around looking at consumption patterns and responses to, for example, sugar and alcohol, and looking at policy responses using taxation as a way to change behaviours. And we wrote about that and we gave we, we provided several policy briefs to, to different governments on the ways in which people could be, sometimes it's described as nudged, nudged into different types of behaviours. So you've worked on various research projects in various countries, including Mozambique, Nepal and Peru. But would you be able to maybe highlight some of the common challenges and unique insights that you've been able to gain while conducting this cross-cultural research on health and gender-related issues, and particularly with a focus on rural communities? 
One of the most important lessons and insights I can share is about creating research partnerships with colleagues in other social, cultural, national contexts and working with interdisciplinary teams and, and scholars from universities. The way you set up partnerships, the way you set up the power relationships is critical to good research. So some of the main insights, I think that my work on gender and health in Mozambique has been really insightful working with one of my Mozambican colleagues, who's also an anthropologist. And we've been sort of tackling and, and working through a lot of data on the gender dimensions of health clinics and trying to think, look at the ways in which global health as a sort of construct that's come from a particular architecture is implemented at a very local level in rural health clinics in Mozambique. And we've been intrigued by the ways in which certain ideas of gender and equalities are reproduced and developed as part of healthcare intervention. And also, you know, it's been some self-reflection on the coloniality and potential coloniality of thinking through northern ideas of gender and, and power relations and thinking those through in rural healthcare context with very different burdens of disease. So could you share some of the key policy recommendations or initiatives that you've been a part of that aim to address gender disparities in global health and what impact have they had on communities worldwide? I'm going to give an example of some work I've been doing with colleagues in Malawi. And we've been looking at the role of interventions among pregnant women with HIV. And one of the models is what's described as a couples-based model to maintaining women, pregnant women, in intervention programs. So that means women who may fall out of, of treatment programs during their pregnancy or, or after they've given birth. One of the theories is that if their male partners would attend the clinic or be supportive of them attending the clinic, this can increase retention of pregnant women in intervention programs. And we've revisited a lot of the data that the interviews and the focus groups and trying to really understand what that means and what those power relationships are and making suggestions that perhaps a couples-based approach not always the approach that is most effective in the sort of communities that we've been conducting research. So we have to take those findings back to the different NGOs and IOs, international organisations, and also the ministries of, of women and ministries of health in Malawi to start to refigure and innovate around the sorts of assumptions and the sorts of interventions that might better maintain women in treatment programs during their pregnancies and after giving birth. Thank you for that answer. Finally, I just wanted to know how have you seen your research and your experience intersect with critical issues of farming, climate risk and food security in developing countries? And what do you see as the most pressing challenges in these contexts? Well, I think without that, the most pressing challenge is climate change and climate and risks associated with that. Transformations and changes in climate are impacting health, they're impacting gender dynamics and all elements of our lives at the moment. So how we can deal with that and work with that, and clearly all our research needs to now be mindful and attentive to the sorts of climate changes that we are witnessing and experiencing. And that we need to design our research 
in ways that tries to fold in observations about that and the ways in which they're impacting health and gender dynamics. I mean, we can see just in the last few weeks the events in North Africa from Libya and Morocco, the impact that built environment and our natural environment is happening is impacting on health. That was Clara Somerville talking to our reporter, Kiara Rainsby. And that brings us to the end of episode 49. Thanks as always to our producer here in Rome, Francesco Manetti, to our reporters, Roberto Gonzalez, Kiawa Rainsby, and Rosa Gonzalez, and to Alexia Vater and Emily Agras. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to episode 49 of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Join us next month. We'll be celebrating being together for 50 Farms Food Future episodes and many more to come. Remember, we want to hear from you, what you think about our stories and who you want us to be talking to. So please get in touch at podcasts at efat.org. And send us your voice or text messages to that address, and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform, and please rate us. We'll be back at the end of November with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet, and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson. And from me, Michelle Tang, and the team here at EFAT, thanks thanks for for listening. listening.